Thanks for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. We hope that these resources aid your worship of God and help you experience gospel change for all of life. For more information on our church or to plan a visit, please check us out online at SovereignHope.Church. That's SovereignHope.Church. Let's pray. Uh, Lord Jesus, we thank you for your your word. Um, And Lord, we are so appreciative of even today um, having kids' classrooms finished and being able to split out in their own age and their own teaching um, toddlers from the nursery today. We pray for that new class, Jesus, uh, for the volunteers who are praying and preaching Christ um, to our our two- and three-year-olds. Lord, as we are in here, um, we are always, even though we may be adults in here, we are always children in need of guidance from God our Father. And you have provided that abundantly to us in your word. So be with us today as we look at Luke. We love you, Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen. So at long last, we're back in uh, our study through the book of Luke. Uh, we took a break at the beginning of the new year for uh, a Bible survey course, working through the whole of the story of scripture. Uh, but a bit of refresher is helpful for us because we actually haven't been in Luke since November 27th, so nearly three months. And so we kind of need to pick back where we were and have some context. And at this point, uh, Jesus, having helped his disciples in the first uh, eight chapters of the book of Luke, understand his messianic identity and his purpose, he has transitioned his ministry from northern Judea, and he is traveling to Jerusalem. He's on the road to Jerusalem where Jesus has predicted in the book of Luke, he is going to be crucified and raised again. This journey to Jerusalem is the largest segment of Luke's gospel. It takes up nearly 10 chapters of the 24 chapters in the book. And in it, Luke is highlighting for us a number of things, the culture, the cost, and the conflict of discipleship. All these things happen as we follow Jesus even today. The path of discipleship is the path of the cross. And last time, all the way back in November 27th, Jesus performed a miracle He healed a man who is demon-possessed and mute. And some people marveled, but other people grumbled, scoffed, and disbelieved. And here, this scoffing, disbelieving, what Jesus is going to show to us, this evil nature inside the crowds is going to become more and more apparent as the conflict between Jesus and unbelief comes to a climax in the book of Luke. But as it relates for us today, uh, we need to remember specifically the challenges that are being proposed to Jesus after he healed this man. And so this is all the way back in Luke 11, verses 15 through 16. So this is after he performs this sign, we read this. But some of them said, he casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, while others to test him kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. And so in that passage, we continued and looked at Luke 11, 27 through 26, or 17 through 26, and Jesus answered back to those who said that he's just Satan casting out Satan. And he says, a house divided against itself cannot stand. He is the one stronger than Satan who is breaking the forces of darkness by exhibiting the kingdom of God over them. And now today, in verses 29 through 36, Jesus is going to answer the second challenge. That is those who seek to test Jesus by demanding from him signs. And as the crowds are increasing around Jesus, he's leaning into this idea of how you understand Jesus and who you see him to be. And here's the opening context that for our passage today that Jonathan just read for us in Luke 11, verse 29. When the crowds were increasing, he, that's Jesus, began to say, this generation is an evil generation. 
It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given it except the sign of Jonah. So in the presence of increasing crowds and multitudes, in the face of skepticism and doubt, Jesus wants you to see something very clearly. In other words, if you want to be convinced of Jesus, what do you need to see? What sign is sufficient? If you want to see Jesus as more trustworthy, where ought you to look? And so Jesus helps us understand the nature of the skepticism in Luke 11 here when he describes it with a word. The word is evil. Now that word evil means all the things we would think about with evil. It's moral failure, it's corruption, it's wickedness. But behind this Greek word is also the idea of stinginess. And this is really important for those who are listening to this right now because instead of seeing and submitting to Jesus, he's pointing out a problem behind the evil nature of our hearts. Our hearts are stingy. They are withholding hearts. They are demanding hearts. They are hearts that are never opening up but are always closed to the message of Jesus. We live in a culture today where we demand proofs and signs for everything and anything. And maybe when you've shared the gospel with a coworker or a neighbor, they've answered with something similar. I would believe in Jesus if blank. If Jesus did something, if he caused the moon to disappear from the sky, if he healed my grandma, whatever it is, here's the sign. If I see the sign, I'll believe. Or maybe you've wrestled with a similar challenge in your own heart, whether it's in the face of choosing obedience over disobedience or following God to push you into a place where it's uncomfortable, you might say, if only Jesus would blank, I would trust in him. We all have these blanks in our life. If only I could see blank. And in Jesus' teaching here, there's both a challenge and a comfort. The challenge is that a wicked and unbelieving heart will always resist Jesus. And that's because the problem is not with what is outside, but it's the stinginess that is on the inside of our hearts. But there's a comfort here as well. And that comfort is that Jesus is talking to us. He's informing us of a sign that is so powerful that if we are able to see it, it will overcome the evil stinginess of our hearts and grant to us the repentant, transformative faith that saves. And so our big picture today is kind of two thoughts. This is what we're going to see. First, we're going to see out of everything we could see, Jesus is the one thing we must see. Out of everything, Jesus is the one thing we must see. But then... Seeing Jesus as the one thing changes how we see everything. Seeing Jesus as the one thing changes how we see everything. And those are the two ideas we're going to see. And so we're going to see the idea of one thing, that is the thing of the gospel, being over everything in verses 29 through 32. And then in verses 33 through 36, we're going to see how if we see the gospel as the one thing, then it actually changes how we view everything. Let's examine our first point today. This is what Jesus says about the one thing over everything. The one thing over everything. Read with me, Luke eleven twenty nine 29 through 32. When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, this generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. 
The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. So everyone's looking for a sign. They're seeking for it. That's what Jesus says here. And he says something incredible. He says, no sign will be given to them except for this one sign. Now, in order for us to understand the significance of this, we need to remind ourselves where we're at in the book of Luke. What's been going on in this story that makes Jesus' idea that I will give no sign except for this sign so powerful? Would you believe it if God all of a sudden appeared to you by sending an angel to physically manifest itself to you? If an angel suddenly appeared, would you believe that to be a sign from God? Would you believe in God? Would you take it as a sign if all of a sudden an angel of God appeared to you and told you that your wife, who was barren and old in age, would suddenly conceive and bear a son? Would that be a sufficient sign for you? Would you take it as a sign if God appeared to you by an angel and told you that your wife, who is old and barren, was going to conceive and have a son, and when you doubted in that God, that God said he was going to cause your tongue to be still and you would be mute? Would you take it as a sign if the God who appeared to you by an angel, who promised you a son, who made you mute, who then caused a son to be born, who then opened your mouth after the son was born, causing you to praise the God who opened the mouth, who gave the son, who sent the angel, who provided the promise, was revealed to you? Would you take that as a sign? That's chapter one of the book of Luke. And then there's another sign. A virgin conceives not of the will of man, but of the will of God in the womb of Mary. And she bears a son who is Christ the Lord. And when Jesus is born, we happen to see some signs, don't we? Jesus did some stuff. In Luke 4, he begins to preach, proclaiming that he is the anointed Messiah of God. But words mean little, right? We live in a generation where words of promise are everywhere and unending. What would it take you to believe his words? Would you believe his words if as a sign he cast out a demon while he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God? Would you take it as a sign that he healed all who came to him in the city of Capernaum? Would you take it as a sign if he made clean a leper by the lake, when he caused a lame man to walk in Galilee, when he restored a man's hand in the synagogue, when he healed a man from miles away with just a word, when he raised a widow's son back from the dead, when he calmed the storm with just a sentence, when he liberated a man who couldn't be contained or liberated by an entire town, when he raised, again, a young girl back to life, when he was transfigured, even if in the presence of few, into radiant glory. Would you believe that as a sign? Because that's just a summary of what Jesus has done up until this point in Luke chapter 11, publicly, visibly, and before the crowds. Yet despite all of these things that we might call a sign, he says, no sign will be given except for this one sign. 
Now, we could probably put together two strong implications at this point. First, seeing does not always equal believing. Seeing does not always equal believing. Maybe, just maybe, Jesus solving the blanks in your life is not what you need to see most in order to believe. Maybe the problem is not in what we are seeing, but in what we are believing. Second, in light of this, in light of all that has been for Jesus to audaciously say that no sign will be given but this sign, that this one sign, this sign Jesus is about to teach us is therefore the one sign we cannot afford to miss. If there is one thing in the ministry of Jesus he's drawing our attention to, it is this sign amongst all the healings, the miracles, and the feedings. This is what Jesus is drawing our attention to, lest we be an evil generation. And this sign, Jesus says, is the sign of Jonah. And what this sign shows us is the most important thing we can see about Jesus is not the miracles that he, of what he's done, but the miracles of who he is and what he's going to do. You see, coming out of our Bible survey series, we looked at the story of scripture in eight weeks. It's no surprise here that Jesus, in order to help people understand who he is, roots his own identity in the story of the Old Testament. When he starts talking about the sign of Jonah, the Jews of this day who he's talking to would have imported an immediate frame of context into the words that Jesus is saying, but we, being removed from it, might need some help. And so what does it mean when he says, for as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the son of man, again, that's Daniel chapter 10, so will the son of man be to this generation. Who was Jonah and who did he represent to Nineveh? That's what we need to understand this morning if we don't want to miss this significant sign as well. And so let's turn to the book of Jonah. How do we understand Jonah? Well, a great place to start is in Jonah chapter one, verses one and two. This is how the book of Jonah begins. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. So here we meet Jonah. He is sent to Nineveh. Why? So here's Bible study. Look in your Bible. Look on the screen. Why did Jonah get sent to Nineveh? Because of their sin. Jonah came as a sign of judgment. He went to call them to repentance. Why? Because of their evil. Do you hear Jesus in Luke eleven twenty nine? This is an evil generation and Jonah's being sent to Nineveh because their evil has come up before God and God was going to do something about it. Jonah came as a representation that those in Nineveh were evil and he was about to let them know that they were evil. I watched a documentary uh, that, that tried to understand why the children's program Barney was met with so much hostility in the 90s. I was a child growing up singing really violent songs about this children's character who was just loving and happy. And so it was this social experiment where we're trying to understand why did something so pure cause so much visceral hatred towards this thing? And in the 90s, if you were lucky enough to be alive then, it was all grunge music. It was all dark. It was all this wonderful impurities inside of our hearts being celebrated. We are all flawed. We are all broken. But then in the midst of it, here was this child's character 
who didn't embody any of the flaws our culture wanted to celebrate. He stood as an indictment of that generation. And because of that, this is what they summarized, because Barney stood as everything this generation was not, their only response was to hate him. Jesus showed up, and he was the perfect man. And he lived not only the perfect life as a man, but he was God in the flesh. He was perfect divinity and perfect humanity, which means he came not only as a witness of who we ought to have been, but he came also as the judge who is able to punish and condemn those who are less than perfect. That is those who are sinful. But Jonah was not merely a sign of judgment. In fact, if you are familiar with the story of the book of Jonah, after God calls Jonah to go to Nineveh, he runs away from God's call. Why? Because he hated the Ninevites. Nineveh was the capital city of the nation of Assyria. They had waged war against Israel. They were the boogeymans. They were a thorn in their side. But this raises a question. If Assyria was the enemy of Israel, and if God was going to Nineveh to call them or to, to inform them of judgment on their behalf, wouldn't Jonah want to be the first one in line to go do this? Wouldn't he want to get that and say, yes, Lord, send me to these people so I could tell them how evil they are and I could watch you just smite them from the face of the planet? And yet Jonah ran from this call. Why? Because Jonah knew that when God manifested himself with warnings and judgment, that repentance often followed. And in Jonah chapter four, Jonah says why he ran. He says, for I know you are a gracious God, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, willing to relent of disaster. Jonah knew the nature of the God who sent him, and he knew that if he were faithful to preach even judgment, that God might cause people to repent, and therefore God would relent and they would be saved. And as we'll see, that's exactly what happened. Jonah goes, and the people of Nineveh are saved. But this only happened after God captured the runaway Jonah, the unwilling prophet, and uh, put him in the belly of a fish. He got thrown overboard. A fish swallowed him up. He lived in the belly of the fish for three days until Jonah himself repented. And once he was freed from that grave, he went, he preached his message, the city repented, and the city was saved. In other words, Jonah was a sign of warning and certain judgment, but he was also a sign of potential of salvation. And what was the moment that lay at the center of that? When did, when did the certainty of judgment get coupled with the possibility of salvation? After Jonah spent three days in the belly of the fish. In the book of Matthew, Jesus adds this, Matthew adds this to Jesus' message here that we're looking at in the book of Luke and the similar thing where he says this in verses 39 through 40. But he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the son of man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So what do you need to see 
if you want to see the true sign of who Jesus is. You must see him as the messenger of judgment and salvation in the same way that Jonah was. And just as Jonah spent three days in the belly of the fish to emphasize the universality of God's judgment, that even if God's prophet ran away and disobeyed, he too was liable to judgment. But then we also see when he repents and is released from that grave, that salvation is possible. So too, as Jesus will spend three days in the grave after he is crucified on the cross, salvation is possible. And even more so for as Jonah spent three days in the belly of a fish, unwilling for people to repent, Jesus will willingly go to the cross because he is the extension of the God, gracious, merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Judgment exists whether you believe it or not. All the entrances at all the entrances to the city of Missoula on any of the streets, maybe you've seen them, are signs that say the use of handheld electronic devices are prohibited within city limits. Those signs stand as a warning. You could have a child. Eva was just born this week. She probably hasn't left the city limits. She could grow up here, never leave the city limits, never see those signs. But when she begins to drive and if she's on her phone and gets pulled over, is she liable to that same law? Absolutely. Because it exists, whether she realizes it or not. Judgment is certain, but signs help us to see for the purpose of doing what? Responding. Changing. The Bible has a word for that. It's called repenting. Changing your life on account of a warning. To understand Jesus fully, to see him for who he really is and to believe in him properly, we must see the reality, the unshakable truth and the unavoidable end of judgment. The cross solidifies it. How definite is judgment? Definite enough that even the flawless son of God himself on account of your sins could not escape it. It had to happen. All who have sinned deserved death and all have sinned. Death is inevitable. Judgment will come. But because of Jesus' life, ministry, and death serve as a warning, because he came out of the grave, he is also the sign of the possibility of salvation. Just as the cell phone sign gives us a possibility to respond properly, the cross of Jesus proves that all who see the warning of judgment receive the warmth of salvation where Jesus is not merely a sign. He actually accomplishes something, that he is the one who takes away our sins by faith. That Jesus, just as Jonah was, reminds us that judgment is certain, but salvation is possible for all who believe in him. Jesus takes that record of cell phone usage. He takes that record of sin and he bears that penalty in himself and it sends him to the grave for three days. This, Jesus as a sign of the certainty of judgment, but the possibility of salvation is the central sign Jesus wants you to see about him. How do you view Jesus. How do you think about him? Here's what Jesus wants you to know about himself. And Jesus makes it abundantly clear. You can see every sign he's done in this entire book in the flesh. You could walk the path that Jesus walked. 
You can live in the midst of these miracles, but if you don't see this, you see nothing. You miss it all. And in this next portion, he goes to show what our response to this sign should be. If Jesus is the sign of Jonah, how should we respond? Well, he gives two examples. Lest we want to be condemned, we should seek Jesus's, Jesus for his wisdom and worship him, and we should respond to Jesus' preaching by repenting. He gives the first of these case studies in Luke 11, verse 31, where Jesus says this, the queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. So Jesus again dips into the Old Testament bag and shares this story of the queen of the south. And he's speaking of the queen of Sheba, this Gentile queen in a faraway nation who lived in the days of King Solomon. She heard a rumor of Solomon's wisdom and his wealth and his kingdom, and she went to go see if it were true. She went to go examine it sincerely. And look at the account of her examination in 1 Kings 1, or 1 Kings 10, excuse me, verses 1 through 10. And notice the happiness, the joy, the abounding truth she finds in Solomon. Now, when the queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to test him with hard questions. She came to Jerusalem with a very great retinue, with camels bearing spices, very much gold and precious stones. And when she came to Solomon, she told him all that was on her mind. And Solomon answered all of her questions. There was nothing hidden from the king that he could not explain to her. And when the queen of Sheba had seen the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he had built, the food of his table, the seating of his officials and the attendance of his servants, their clothing, his cupbearers, and his burnt offerings that he offered at the house of the Lord, there was no more breath in her. And she said to the king, the report was true that I heard in my own land of your words and your wisdom. But I did not believe the reports until I came and my own eyes had seen it and behold, half was not told to me. Your wisdom and prosperity surpasses the report that I heard. Happy are your men. Happy are your servants who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Blessed be the Lord your God who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel. Because the Lord loved Israel forever, he has made you king that you may execute justice and righteousness. Then she gave the king 120 talents of gold and a very great quantity of spices and precious stones. Never again came such an abundance of spices as these that the queen of Sheba gave to King Solomon. So what do we see here? A queen from a foreign Gentile nation heard, went, saw, and worshiped the God of Israel. She examined it and realized that it was better than she ever imagined. And she opened up the treasuries of her own nation and poured it out to the God of Israel. Jesus then returns to the story of Jonah for the second part of this case study in chapter 11, verse 32. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. So even after Jonah went to Nineveh, he preached a very meager message at a very meager pace. He was hoping that Nineveh would not respond. 
Jonah wanted fire to fall from heaven and to consume the Ninevites. But look at what happened in the book of Jonah. Jonah 3, verses 4 through 10, after Jonah preaches his message. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he cried out, Yet forty days in Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed in God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne and removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes, and he issued a proclamation and published throughout Nineveh. By the degree, decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and may turn, his fierce, turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. And when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. I always use this as a wonderful example for guys who are learning to preach. I say, Stephen in Acts chapter 7 preached the best sermon ever preached, and he got killed. Jonah preached the worst sermon, and everyone repented. So just aim for the middle. That's where we're going. Here Jonah went. He repented, or they, he preached a message, 40 days, and you'll be destroyed. And people repented, and they were spared. Now remember who Jesus is primarily wrestling with. He's speaking to the Jews, to the people of Israel, to religious officials who find their identity in their national ethnic heritage. But who are the superstars Jesus is talking about in Luke chapter 11? A foreign Gentile queen and a pagan villainous nation. There is a scathing critique in these pages. At a rumor the queen of Sheba picked up her, her riches, traversed the globe to hopefully see a rumor confirmed so that she might offer rich worship. What you'll notice is even though she doubted, what did she come with? She came with something where if this were true, she would offer it all up. She would give it up to the God of Israel. At a whisper, the pagan Ninevites rendered their whole of their lives as one of repentance, renovation, and conversion, desperately hoping that a contrite heart the Lord would not despise. And what rhetorical effect should this produce in this generation? This evil generation sitting before Jesus. If the Gentile queen came from that far, and if a pagan nation repented that hard at the work of ordinary men, how much more ought this generation in the face of him who is greater, the wisdom of God himself, Jesus Christ, how much more ought they to seek his wisdom and to repent with the whole of their lives? The queen of Sheba turned the tribute paid to her and opened it up to the God of Israel. The pagan nation who warred against the God of Israel rendered the whole of their life to God. What then does this mean for you? How far will you come for Jesus's wisdom? How soberly will you repent at the preaching of the gospel? I've seen in my own life, and I've seen in your lives, how far we will go 
for entertainment. How far out our calendars are scheduled, how meticulously our bank accounts and funds are planned for so that we might not miss an ounce of what this world has offered. But how far will you go to God's word for the comfort of scripture, for the assurance of faith, for all things pertaining to life and godliness? I've seen how powerful repentance, that is change in the opposite direction, is when we encounter a new diet, a new wardrobe, a new habit. I have seen lives completely renovated at the diagnosis of a food allergy. But at the preaching of Jesus and the promise of judgment on behalf of the terminal nature of your sin, where can you point to your life and say, here is my repentance? Here is the change that the condemnation of sin has rendered for the promise of new life in Jesus. What you see here is so incredibly sobering. The queen of the south, the men of Nineveh, Jesus says, will rise up with this generation. What does that mean? Jesus is talking in the context of eternity. He's talking about the resurrection from the dead where all will stand before God for final judgment. It means right now your issues with Jesus are not a momentary or past issue. There are so many things in life that you could sweep under the rug and through time and neglect, they will go away. Your relationship to Jesus Christ is not one of those. It is always a present and eternally a future. One day, even those who are dead will rise up and condemn you. We do not trifle with what is temporary, but we engage in what is eternal, each and every one of us. And when that happens, people like the Queen of Sheba and the men of Nineveh, who have seen less than us, for they have not seen the greater Jonah or the greater Solomon, they will condemn you, for they did more with less They saw shadows where we see substance and it revolutionized their life. There's a level of ashamedness that should strike even us today in this text. For those who pound the table for signs and proofs with blanks all over their life, do you see how your own desire for a sign condemns you? Because to desire a sign means you have rejected all of the signs. It points to the stinginess of your own evil heart. Abram, We saw today in our scripture reading, believed on nothing more than a promise that God would make him into a nation, and he went. Israel hoped on a substitutionary lamb that it would spare them the death of their firstborn in Egypt, and it worked. David walked into battle with nothing more than a boast in his heritage, and that that stone was slung with the force of a sniper's bullet. A queen came at a rumor and left rejoicing. The Ninevites repented at a whisper and received relief. The disciples in the book of John followed Jesus 
by the mere message of what he was going to do. The church grew in the book of Acts out of the real witness that Jesus did everything he said he would do, that he was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended to the grave, and he really rose again. Since then, the church has flourished across the globe through nations, tongues, and tribulations, across persecution and government distress, and from infighting, and from famine, and from war. People so hardened in heart, so calloused in sin, have found relief in the fount of Jesus's blood. We live in the days which Peter tells us, which angels longed to look. The signs are there. And so too is the shame for all who refuse to see. But if you have felt that twinge of ashamedness, if you have felt the guilt of wanting to see something, if you fear the ramifications of those who do not repent, take heart, for a sign has come and light has dawned. We must see that in Jesus as our judge and savior, we have the one sign that makes sense of everything. But when we see that one sign of Jesus as both our savior and our judge, and if we have faith in him, he takes our sin and gives us the possibility of salvation. Everything else in our life begins to be shaped by this. What we once could not see, now we can see nothing apart from it. And this is our second point today. This is everything under one thing. Everything under one thing. Read with me Luke 11, 33 through 36. No one after lighting a lamp puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand, so that those who enter may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of the body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it is bad, your whole body is full of darkness. Therefore, be careful, lest the light in you be darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright, as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. So do you see this intermixing, which we'll see here for the next several weeks through the book of Luke, this intermixing of both relief and warning. So what do we see here? We see resurrected witnesses are going to be called. We see judgment will follow. We see condemnation will be the reality of some. But in the midst of all of that, God has given a sign. He has lit a lamp and he has no intention of hiding it. Jesus has come not to be hidden, but to be displayed. Jonah did not need to go to Nineveh to convince them of their wickedness. But he went to Nineveh to show them that on account of their wickedness, salvation is possible through the Lord's anointed. Jesus has come, why? So that we may see and be saved by the light. So that we will not be those who refuse to come. We will not be those who refuse to repent. But instead, we will receive grace upon grace through the light of the life of Jesus Christ. And Jesus presses this parable into our own hearts here when he talks about our eyes. He says, if our eyes are healthy, so that Greek word is playing off what we looked up earlier. The idea means healthy. For eyes healthy, it means generous, excuse me. There's this generosity in contrast to the stinginess. Then your whole body will be full of light. But when it is bad, it is dark. This makes sense of our bodies, right? If you have good, light, good eyes, how much light gets in? All the light you need to see. If you have bad eyes, what happens? So kids, there are lots of kids in here. I want you to do something with me. I want you to squint your eyes. Well, first of all, I want you to open your eyes really big. Let me see your eyes. Get as big as you can and notice how much you see. Now I want you to squint. 
Squint as narrow as you can. Is it darker? Yes, hopefully. Now open your eyes. Look, no one turned off the lights. So what happened? Your eye was bad. The problem was never in how much light was in the room. The problem is in what your eye let in to your body. The body is tainted with darkness. It's not the light. It's not that the light isn't bright. It's not that the light isn't here. It's that we have a problem. Jesus says that problem is a bad eye in verse 34. That same word bad is the same Greek word, panero, translated in verse 29 as evil. The problem in this parable is not that the light doesn't shine bright enough. It's that the eye is morally evil and willingly stingy. If we are kept from seeing Jesus and his sign of judgment and salvation, that loss of that one thing makes everything dark. But when that one thing is seen with healthy eyes, when we opened our eyes, our whole body is made light. And Jesus uh, makes the only imperative command in this passage. The only imperative man is given to us, or command is given to us in verse 35 and 36. Pay attention to it here. Therefore, be careful, lest the light in you be darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright, as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. Be careful, lest the light in you be darkness. Have you guys ever seen, either in real life or on TV, glowworms? They're pretty astounding. By God's creative beauty, there are these little worms that emit creative splendor and actually light up. But at the end of the day, when the greater light of the sun shines on them, they're shown to be exactly what they are. Glow they might, they are worms. Their kingdom is darkness, and they are preyed upon by the lowest of all creatures. Bask not in the light of the worm when the light of the Son of Jesus Christ is afforded to us in the gospel. So how do we know if the light we have is darkness? How do we know if we're preoccupied with nothing more than a glowworm? Does the light you follow consume the whole of your life? Glowworms can preoccupy us for a moment, but try and make your way through life with nothing but a glowworm as a guide and you'll get nowhere. Can the light of your life make sense of your sin, the pain in this world, the brokenness you have, the weight of eternity that lurks in your heart? Does it offer you the promise of salvation, hope, and change in the midst of it? Are we driven by the splendor of Jesus, which shines on our vocations and our vacations and our educations and all the other sins you could think of? Does it consume us in the same way the light of the sun consumes every ounce of the earth that it shines upon? Does the gospel emit the same gravity of attraction that Solomon's wisdom did to the queen of Sheba? Does it compel you? Does it pull you to come and see, to to take the promise of God's infinite riches and put it to the test? Can it sustain it? Is it endless? Is it as good as people say it is? Because what if you don't see it? What if looking at the gospel... You stand like at a piece of modern art and you're just like, I just don't see it. 
Well, Jesus tells us what to do. First, he says, be warned. Be warned. To not see it is to stand in judgment. But he's also the first to tell you by way of the Ninevites, repent. Repent. Change your ways. Come to him. Have your stingy eyes healed by the generosity of his grace. God is generous to the Gentile queen and to the merciful pagan Ninevites. If you're one who has questions, sincere doubts, who has heard a rumor of all the grace and truth that's said to be in the gospel, and you wonder, could it be true? Could it be true for me? Come and see. Come on the path of repentance and see. It is no shame to wonder at the miraculous claims of the gospel. They're miraculous. There is nothing in this whole world that can promise what the gospel can promise. It's not a shame to wonder. It's a shame to never come. It's a shame to put yourself as truth over God's truth. So if you need wisdom, if you wonder if your eye is healthy, if you need help seeing the light, notice, you guys read this last week in your Bible reading in James chapter one, what James says to us. James one, verse five. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given to him. For those who come sincerely, even with sincere doubts as the queen of Sheba did, hoping against hope, God will not meet you with reproach, but instead he will show you the light of Christ, which changes everything. It will change how you view yourself. When light shines, it shines on what is dark. That's the nature of it. But more than simply illuminating what is gross and vile within us, what is evil in our hearts, It promises the potential of change through the grace of Jesus Christ. Look at how Paul puts this in Ephesians 5, verses 13 through 14. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and the light of Christ will shine on you. It's not on the screen, but Jesus' same imperative shows up right here in Ephesians 5. 515, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. When we see the light of Jesus, we no longer have to hide our wicked parts, but we offer them up to him, wanting them to be healed by his grace. We see ourselves differently in light of the gospel, but we begin to see the whole of the world differently. Have you ever encountered an animal like a deer at night when you're driving along? And what do you see first? You see their eyes, right? These little glow circles on the side of the road. As because God has so designed the eyes of animals to capture what little light there is in their surrounding environment and to reflect it off the back of their eyes so that the light they receive is also the light by which they see. They're taking all of the light and it's illuminating what's in front of them. God has designed the soul of the Christian in such a way that when the light of Jesus shines into it, it also provides the light we need to make sense of the world. The eye that receives the light sees everything through the end of the light. That's what Jesus says. He says, your whole body is wholly bright as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. The gospel, which will consume us in the end at judgment, consumes us now through the weight of Jesus. Richard Baxter, an old Puritan pastor in the 1600s, once had to reconcile himself with this same idea of who Jesus was and what he claimed to be. 
But once he saw Jesus, once he saw the sign of Jonah in scripture, he was struck by the sign of Christ and his whole world changed. He said this on how he viewed the world. He says, none of the parts or concerns of religion seemed small. None of thinking about the gospel seemed insignificant. And man, which can seem so big to us at times, seemed nothing at all. And the world and all of her glowworms was a shadow and God was all. When he saw the one thing over everything, he began to see everything through the lens of the one thing. Will you join me in that simple point of application this morning? Will you be careful to assess the significance of the gospel in your life? Will you soberly ask yourself if your faith is exclusively confirmed in the events of the cross? And then pray to God for wisdom that the cross will begin to illuminate everything else for you. This hope has saved foreign queens and pagans across the globe and throughout history, and it will save and satisfy even us today. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we ask that you open our eyes to see the sign that has been present through the work of Jesus, but that our stingy hearts conceal on account of our evil. Lord, we thank you that Christ has died and taken away our sins so that we might see and have life. I pray you grant us the joy to seek you for wisdom, for you make sense of things that the world cannot, and grant us the fruit of repentance because we see the truth and reality of who you are. Lord, give us good eyes by giving us clarity on who you are and what you've done for us. We pray all this in your name. Amen.